0: The NBA season is heating up, and Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon have got you covered on The Mismatch. They discuss all the news, the trends, and transactions happening around the league. They also offer their on-court analysis and occasionally get into heated debates. Check out The Mismatch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com.
0: help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, dot Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn
2: more. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Press Box Thursday, Brian Curtis and producer Erica Cervantes here. Man, there are a lot of things going on in my little corner of the media world this week. Minutes before we started recording this pod, the baseball lockout ended. We're going to have baseball. And today's guest, Ben Strauss of the Washington Post, wrote a fantastic story about how this lockout was covered very, very differently than previous baseball work stoppages. We're going to get into that plus the gloominess of baseball writers, the NFL announcer merry-go-round, Ben's time on paternity leave, and much more. Here's Ben Strauss. All right, Ben, we're talking on Thursday afternoon, and baseball Twitter, a.k.a. the gloomiest place on earth these last few weeks, just got a lot less gloomy. The lockout is over after 99 days. Baseball is coming back. You wrote about this this week. First off, before we get into the meat of your story, how did you find the mood of the people covering baseball?
3: mood. <laughs> the Gloomy seems right. I also, uh, one of the overworked Twitter jokes I'm sure you'll see is all these editors were tweeting, you know, what solved the lockout was all of our 100-day lockout stories that they had <laughs> planned and right the 100-day lockout stories we're going to run tomorrow. And so mm. they've been working on them. And then, of course, on day 99, it ended. Um, so that was the joke, right, that all... These 100-day assignments ended the lockout, of course. Yeah. I Um, saw the
2: one where the negotiations were on the two-yard line, and we had the overwork that I hope Pete Carroll's not calling the plays. uh, (laughs) So we got them all out of the way. Anyway, Gloomy, Gloomy. were they they in that kind of mindset of, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than covering this story or please make it stop?
3: I think everybody sort of recognized that it was a hard story to cover. Um, But also that it was an important story to cover and that there was way more coverage, I don't know if this was in the piece, but there was way more coverage of this lockout than there had been of previous lockouts, more daily stories, more different outlets. Um, And I think Passon was one of the people who said, maybe in my, earlier in my career, I don't think I would have realized how important this is, but now it is maybe the most important story that I will cover. So I think there was like a weight to the story. And then you really were like caught between, and I mean, you know, this is part of being a journalist anyway, but you know, you said one thing you were going to get killed on social media and you (laughs) wrote another thing and major league baseball was going to scream at you. And, you know, obviously people are going to scream at you often, you know, when you're writing contentious things, but I think that there was, um, there was an effort. uh, People felt that they were threading a needle here, I think. Yeah.
2: You take a picture of a player's Porsche as it pulls into the parking lot and other people will scream at you. Really? There's just <laughs> it's a lot of issues. That brings us to your terrific piece this week about the way the lockout was covered. What did you find?
3: I think that the reporters were like a little bit surprised that they would be criticized for reporting. Um it's so actually I I could probably get to that later, but I I think the the top line is, you know, even before that is sort of what the previous answer was that there was just way more interest and way more coverage of this as a really big deal, um, for baseball. And if you, um, I mean, for me just reading the coverage, um, in the past couple of weeks, where so much of it was, was so striking when you look back at what labor coverage used to be. Like A, because the AP was covering and like Murray Chass was covering and how many other people were covering. But, you know, uh, you've talked about this, you know, a million times too, is that in sports, it used to be greedy players, right? I can't believe that, you know, the third baseman is making a million dollars or $2 million. And it used to be like a pretty prevalent line of opinion in sports. And you never hear that anymore. Um, and I think, in a lot of ways, that's that's good. That's progress, right? You now know how much money owners are making, how much the teams are worth. Um, you can get away. You have to write about the player salary in the context of how much money the sport is making. And in almost a little bit like college sports, where once the coaches were making like two and three and four million dollars, it became harder and harder to say why should the players just get a scholarship is, you know, teams are getting sold for $2 billion. It becomes a little strange to say, why is that guy making, you know, $10 million a year? Um, But the, I guess the surprising thing was that there did seem to be a sentiment among a lot of writers that a lot of them were looking around at their own coverage, other coverage, and, you know, noticing that a lot of it was sort of slanted in a similar way and, you know, there were definitely a few people who wondered if the pendulum had swung a little too far.
2: And slanted meaning in, in terms of in favor of the players? I mean, how does that manifest itself?
3: Maybe slanted isn't the right way. Maybe more sympathetic to the player argument, right? And I think I said this to somebody else. So if you want to say slanted toward the players, another way to put it would be unslanted away from the owner. So mm-hmm. I think you could look at it both those ways. Um, I mean, how did that manifest? I think... Without knowing, you know, is this a very good deal for X or a very bad deal for Y? I think the way that some people looked at it was the the some of the process reporting. And it did seem, you know, that if the owners, you know, waited 40 days to give a to 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 make a presentation or to to make an offer, um, you know, one of the reporters mentioned that's just how negotiations work. Like nobody's gonna make a deal 40 days. Before the deadline, and the owners seem to be getting killed for that. Where the players took five days after they first canceled um, that first week of games, and if that had been the owners, you know, people would have been screaming about how the owners were delaying and not, um, you know, coming to play ball. The, the Porsche thing was one that came out where you're, I'm here reporting, and Max Scherzer shows up in a Porsche, and somehow by noting that, I'm, you know, a, a plant for management. Um,
2: this was an AP reporter, Ronald Blum, who took this picture. That was just a really weird story because the headline of the story, at least the one you linked to in your story was Scherzer arrives in Portia as MLB lockout talks <laughs> resume.
3: Right. It was the lead too, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah. So it was like that, that was what was to me when I first heard that, I thought, oh, that's just a detail, a bit of color in a story. Like surely he didn't mean it like that, but it's place in the story was just really, really strange. sort of jarring if nothing else
3: yeah i right somebody might have edited that into like the you know the eighth graph like we're in florida and here's what you see um but that seemed to be fairly interesting where you there were definitely reporters there who were sort of sort of wowed that that had become a thing and and other people who were like if he shows up in a porsche don't you have to you know say that uh you know, somebody's landing their helicopter on spring training field A, which maybe like one of the St. Louis owners is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're going just by writing that there's a Porsche, you're making a judgment. And if you're you know, going as so far as to make that judgment, you have to contextualize that judgment. So that, that seemed to be an interesting um, debate point where you had people on both sides. I'm trying to think of another one was... Um, when Major League Baseball put out their statement a couple days ago that said, this is deadlocked. And, you know, there was just, here's the MLB on the record statement. And that was jumped on by a few folks who, you know, said if you're going to report the MLB statement, you have to contextualize it. if you call it deadlocked as they want you to, you're feeding into their narrative. Um, and, you know, the pushback on that was here's an on the record statement from Major League Baseball. I have to tell you what they say. And is there sort of a moral paradigm here not to give you their talking points? And somebody mentioned, right, like, it's not like somebody, one of the reporters said to me, if I was like reporting on Trump and COVID, I would have had a problem reporting what the White House was saying. This is not that. We're not dealing with stakes like that or, or moral questions like that. Like Major League Baseball says something, you have to tell people what they said.
2: So, and the tension there is the word deadlocked, essentially. They want to say it's deadlocked. The owners want to say it's deadlocked, but we want you to, or we think it should be reported that it's deadlocked because they are making it deadlocked.
3: They are making it deadlocked. And I, I guess the other layer under that is there's legal ramifications to calling it deadlocked, right? If it's deadlocked, then at some point they can go to a arbitrator or there's, I might be misunderstanding that, but I... I Someone explained it to me that there is some sort of legal ramification. Like the word "deadlock" has a legal meaning. Like you're not just saying this is deadlocked. You're offering a legal argument and you should not do that.
2: So as you talk to people, what were the theories about why lockout coverage was less sympathetic to the owners this time around?
3: I think the information thing was the biggest one, right? We just know way, way more about team, league, owner finances, the the real estate tax breaks they get the the gambling money they're trying to the casinos they're trying to build and you know the the villages around the ballpark like we are more aware of the economics of baseball and really every other sport in ways that like were unfathomable in 1994 so i think that was really the top line and then once you get past that you know i think it sort of diversified a little bit where some people were very cognizant of not doing basic both sides journalism, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of emblematic of, of the Trump mm-hmm. era. You know, some people were talking about their own experiences um, in organized labor and, and being at the bargaining table and what it means to organize and you have this wave sweeping through media, um, which Hannah Kaiser at Yahoo mentioned that she's been at the bargaining table and understands what it means to collectively bargain, that she now realizes that management can change your job at any time and you have one chance to alter the direction of your workplace, of your company, whether you're baseball players or media writers. That was another one. I mean, there's also sort of younger, um, a different set of writers. A couple of people joke to me, like you see Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, like bumper stickers on laptops in the press box and you know in 1994 you probably weren't whoever the Bernie Sanders equivalent was um maybe you were more likely to see a Ross Perot uh bumper sticker on you know somebody's somebody's like rotary phone in 1994 but I think you probably you, you probably have a different class of people doing um the reporting also and then you know um you sort of talked about it but somebody put it to me pretty well. I thought actually, there it seemed an interesting way to put it is right. Like there is definitely a feedback loop on social media, right? There is one point of view that is definitely praised and, and um, you know, retweeted and um, definitely there is an upstream and a downstream, you know, in terms of the two um, opinions and writer said, do you there's a, you see the dopamine rush that people get for dunking on the owners and you, you do want to feel it. Um, but they also added, so you're, you're, you're trying to get that dopamine rush, but in this case, you're also right. So it's, it's kind of nice when those two things align. Um, but those were, I think those were most of the things that, that came up.
2: Here are a couple of additional theories I had and tell me if any of these came up as you were reporting old deadspin and we put an emphasis on old here was really, really interested in labor and really, really interested in economics. And I always thought when I read some of the older baseball writers of previous work stoppages, those guys wanted scoops a lot, but they were not that interested in economics as a subject and labor as a subject that they were going to you know, just dive into. Old Deadspin took a particular line on this and was happy to go after people who they thought were reporting it wrong or doing it wrong. Do you think that just kind of rewired a lot of the sports media and we are still in that sort of rewired state?
3: Yeah, I think that there's like an age of people, and I'm probably in it, or definitely in it, of people who grew up reading some of those deadspin columns where you read these things that were like, you know, what seemed like basic journalism at the time. And they would, you know, tell you this is a pro management view and labor is a vitally important aspect to sports. And so I think, I think that's definitely right. And I think you see the, um, the seeds of that, right? Like, like baseball perspectives and, and, and fan graphs are, I think that they've done some cross publication, you know, on each other's sites over the years, but definitely those sites in particular, the way they cover labor um, definitely sounds a lot like the way Deadspin did. But I think a lot of the people covering it, you know, were probably in high school, college or younger and, and read Deadspin. And I think that's, that's definitely right.
2: The thing I was thinking is a lot of sports writers now, particularly newsbreakers, get a lot of their information from agents, perhaps more from agents than they did in the past, you know, where a lot of more, let's say a larger percentage, perhaps of that information would have come from baseball management. And if you're getting information from agents, that is the player's point of view. Do you think that's mixed up anywhere in here?
3: I did ask about that. That was, that was something that sort of is floating around. There was also sort of this idea that Scott Boris is, you know, a huge, uh, part of these negotiations and everybody's relying on Boris. So everybody's deferring to Boris. I, I asked a number of reporters that, and, um, nobody really bought the Boris argument specifically. Um, I didn't have anybody bite the scoop thing either. One thing that people mentioned is that you do see players, right? The job is being in the locker room. And so you're going to see players. Um, more than you would ever see an owner, right? Like you could cover the Yankees and how many times are you going know, to talk to Hal Steinbrenner, Like once a year, whereas, well, I guess previously, we'll see what happens if every, anybody ever goes back to the locker rooms, but you would have seen, um, you know, players every single day in the locker room. And so that dynamic of sort of who you're talking to and, and who you're um, around, maybe more so than I need a scoop. Um, Was something that came up. The other one, and I didn't put this in the pieces, um, the, the way that the league and the union have set up their, uh, sort of PR response teams are, are pretty different. The league has a, um, a spokesman and he is the, the guy. Whereas the union, um, reporters told me that, that Bruce Meyer, who is doing the lead negotiation, is super available. To answer questions, he briefs reporters. He's available on text. One, uh, one reporter referred to him as being awfully leaky, um, <laughs> in a way that the league might not be. But I, I do tend to think that, like, when you have the person in the room who is explaining the arguments, like, you can't beat that. Um, and so I think in it seems that nobody on the league side really wants to step up and be a spokesman for their position for whatever reason there are. Oh, the other thing that I I should have mentioned is, is sort of the, um, the anti-billionaire sense in America, right? Like it's sort of hard to make a case for billionaires today. Um, you know, where we are with inequality and, you know, where we've been as a country the last couple of years. Um, but sort of coming back, but also the, um, you know, how much, it matters that Bruce Meyer's explaining things versus MLB's PR person. Probably not hugely, but it, maybe a little bit. You're able to get explanations that make more sense. Maybe you get a little more information, and maybe um, you know, the union has put out a little more information um, than the, the league has. It's you know minute to minute or you know, right out of the room.
2: You take all that, and then you marry it with two amazing images from the lockout, one of Rob Manfred practicing his golf swing <laughs> during negotiations, right. another of Manfred smiling during that press conference where he said he was going to cancel games and the season was going right. to be delayed. Um, those images, right, do a lot of work and they do a lot of work on Twitter, especially when they can just be, you know, punched up a billion times.
3: And yeah. Major League Baseball didn't do itself a lot of favors, right? You know, everything from like scrubbing their website to, um you know our our buddy Andrew Marshan reported that they didn't renew Ken Rosenthal because he was mildly critical of uh Rob Manfred um like the the league hasn't done itself a lot of favors to to engender um you know a lot of sympathy i will say that the reporters on the ground were somewhat sympathetic to manfred about the golf thing and the laugh thing and you know they were there and the laugh thing was, you know, he was making a joke with Ken Davidoff, who was retiring. And I think somebody told me that Scherzer actually made a joke about the golf swing thing and said, I do that too. You know, and obviously if Scherzer was caught swinging a golf, you know, a phantom golf club, probably nobody would care. So the reporters there were, were somewhat, maybe this was the only thing they were somewhat sympathetic to Manfred on those <laughs> two things.
2: You mentioned Kenny Rosenthal too and Jeff Passant. And I think that's fascinating because you quoted some of their coverage in here. Those are kind of the two biggest voices in baseball, at least in print and on Twitter. I think it's probably fair to say or somewhere on the podium, right? And the way they were willing to write about the lockout was really interesting and the way they were. And I think, you know, people maybe subconsciously read that and go, okay. and maybe I don't know which way it goes. Maybe they're reading other people and going, oh, here we go. Or maybe people are reading them and going, oh, here we go. But to have really, really prominent reporters covering in that particular way to me is fascinating.
3: I think that um like passon, especially, right? Because he works for a league partner and he was doing this. Um wrote Kenny, too for and Kenny Two for on Fox. Then Kenny Two for Fox of the World Series. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. Somebody mentioned to me when you have, you know, Passon writing what he was writing, that is a big deal. Um, and certainly different. I think it also probably speaks to Those two guys as quote-unquote insiders, I think they do their insider job differently than some of the insiders who cover the NFL or the NBA. Um, Both those guys do, you know, hard-hitting stories and and stories that dig on the league. And um, I think the insiders in the NBA and the NFL, you know, Schefter and Woj and Shams are, are much more often, you know, strictly transactional and sort of very, here's the news. Um, and I think that it's somewhat interesting that in baseball, sort of your two big insiders are pretty good reporters and still doing that kind of reporting. This
1: episode is brought to you by hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the Island. Well, I said, let me head to the North, head towards the water. Let me go on hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise. all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. Side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app.
0: This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike kingdom and the planet of the apes enter the kingdom in imax this friday and in theaters everywhere get tickets now okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call
2: 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's talk a little bit about announcers and the announcer merry-go-round that has consumed so much of our attention. Uh, Troy Aikman is leaving Fox for ESPN for a contract that is worth a reported $18 million a year. Joe Buck might follow him. Al Michaels is going to get some kind of job. Herb Street is likely going to Thursday night. I could continue what is interesting to you about this frenzy?
3: Isn't the top line here, or I guess I don't know. I don't know what's most interesting, but isn't the top line here just how big the NFL is? Yeah. Um, is it's there one is of there the like lines. a right? I the most popular entertainment product in America by a mile, and the gap between the NFL and everything else, whether it's sports or entertainment, just keeps getting bigger. And you know, you ask around, and I guess we should also say here, um, you know. We know about a lot of this stuff because of our friend, Andrew Marshand, who's been all over this. Absolutely. Um, but what, what is the material benefit here for any of these, any of these um, networks, um, aside from people getting more money and their agents getting more money? Um, the NFL likes it. That's like what you hear. The NFL likes it and you want the NFL to like you. Um, and other <laughs> than that, it's like totally amorphous. The telecast is smooth. We want to make it feel like a big event, but there's not like an extra dollar in it. I guess the, w- the one thing, maybe ESPN could get a slightly better Monday night football schedule if the league really likes them, mm-hmm. but they also just got a great schedule last year anyway. So I, I think that it's, it's really um, just how big the NFL is. And I guess if you're um, a network, you can just chalk it up to your marketing budget. If you're spending two and a half billion dollars for, the nfl package what's like another 25 million for the announcing booth?
2: I, I think that's definitely part of it. if you wrote the billion dollar check why are you afraid are going to be afraid of the 18 million check? <laughs>
3: <Right>. <laughs> if you wrote the billion dollar check like what are you gonna like you're gonna cheap out uh, like if you bought the six million dollar <laughs> house and then like you you know like you refuse to like have a fireplace or what it's like uh-huh. it's it's marginal
2: It's marginal. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk to producers and network executives to to a point, but certainly producers, they definitely want it to be good. Like these are their TV shows and they want their TV shows to be as good as possible. Now, you could argue if you have the six million dollar announcer, is your TV show going to really be that much worse than if you have Joe and Troy? But they want I mean, that that is what they do, right? They want to put on a really, really good television show that is incidentally also a professional football game.
3: Do you think that there's like industry executives right now who are rooting for Fox to just let Joe Buck walk? Yes. And then, right? You let <laughs> Joe Buck walk, and then they say, right? Like, so now ESPN can have this thirty million dollar Monday Night Football booth. Good for them. But then Fox can right be like this, the, the the dam, the stopgap against you know the CBS and the Romo contract, and they can put out you know Kevin Burkhardt and Greg Olson and say, oh, here's a good booth. And we're totally fine. And then maybe all the other network executives can go, oh, maybe Tony Romo isn't worth
4: $18 million. <laughs> Are there, like, is everybody it's it's, too is, late? It's- right.
2: I mean, I don't know. What, so you come to that conclusion. Okay. Well, we already signed the contract. So we don't get to claw back the money now. I mean, there's, de- there's definitely a sentiment, a very, very widespread sentiment that CBS made this horrible mistake two years ago. And that that changed everything. And that none of us can make the same mistake again, or just nothing even in the ballpark. And then what have we seen? It's not <laughs> even just Troy Aikman. Chris Collinsworth right. just re-signed a huge contract. Jim Nance just re-signed a huge contract. I was thinking about this today. I think all of those, even if you controlled for inflation, are probably among the top 10 highest announcer deals ever signed in the history of television. I can't vouch for every Kurt Gowdy deal you know, from the 70s, but I think they're all way up there. So the dam is gone as far as I can tell. And if Fox were to make a stand, okay. I definitely think some people would applaud them, but I think it's also like, okay, we're, 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 it's over, right? The new, the new number is this. And
3: right. You could, you could sign Burkhart and Olsen. And if they were like decent two years from now, you'd have to give them like a triple (laughs) raise, right? Cause that's, that's the dollar amount to do that top job. But it's, I mean, I guess I aside from like this is just how big the NFL is. And you know, it's it's pretty good to be like one of these guys or their agents. Um, right. And I guess like Jay Cutler just said the other day, like he'd like to get into it, right? Like and he's a big time sure quarterback, somebody yeah. would probably pay him a lot of money, right? Um, it's just another great it's like another reason to be a, you know, a a known quantity quarterback in the NFL is like you know, a lifelong MULA ticket.
2: Meadowlark CEO, John Skipper, guy we both interviewed used to be the president of ESPN said this somewhere in the Meadowlark universe. I think it was on Levitard show. Uh, and I saw this because Richard Deitch transcribed it. I never saw a scintilla of evidence that people in the booth change the ratings, even by a smidgen. The race to hire people is mostly about internal pride, right? We want to present a good game. We want the media to suggest we have a great booth and the people who can do this very well are very rare. May make a little difference around the advertising margins, right? If people are saying your show is great, but it doesn't matter with the ratings. And then he goes on to say that it's not about math. I totally right. endorse that sentiment. And I think all of us sitting here go, you know, it's not, it's not, you're not going to add another viewer to that. I certainly have said that many, many times, but here's the other thing. How many people in our industry is it about math with? <laughs> <laughs> how many people at ESPN, how many people right. at the Washington post and the ringer and everywhere else, is it about math? Right. That's, you know, maybe some sports radio hosts. Cause I can, you know, look at how many commercials, you know, the commercial rates they're getting and how much they're pulling in on their time slot. Right. But that's not really what a lot of media and journalism certainly in particular is about.
3: Well, you could even say that like everything on ESPN and Fox that isn't live sports is sort of, Extraneous, right? And yet, right aside from Stephen A. Smith, right, everything else doesn't matter. Stephen A. Smith, more people do watch. I think. I think that is actually true. Um, but like, as long as you don't have right, like, I understand why ESPN when they had Jason Witten and every single Monday night was the laughing stock of sports Twitter. Like that is damaging to your brand. But but like, once you get beyond that and you have competence, like you know, Brian Greasy and Louis Riddick and Steve Levy were totally fine. Um, But I think you're right. I do think at ESPN in particular, where they've had, you know, that revolving crew, like going back years, everything from Kornheiser to Dennis Miller, like it was sort of, um, you know, it was a bit of a crapshoot and hadn't had anything, you know, consistent in forever. Um, I, I think that Jimmy Pitaro did, you know, take some personal pride and I want to fix this booth and I would like to be the guy that fixes this. booth.
2: Yeah, absolutely. While they're doing that larger quote unquote reset with the NFL. All right, Ben, before we get out of here, I want to ask you about paternity leave. You had been away from the beat for a little while, uh, as a dad, myself, I T M TM as a father of children, <laughs> I, I was, I was interested. I was jealous. Tell me what, what made your decision to go on paternity leave.
3: Uh, they offered, (laughs) um, it wasn't, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't ask for it. There's a policy. So I, I have a two year old and now a four month old, two and a half year old and a four month old. And when I went before the policy was four weeks, so just two years ago, it was four weeks. And I took that, um, and, and somebody might fact check me on this, but I do think that our union was pushing for, um, more paternity leave. And I think that the DC local government passed something. Or was in the works to pass something um to guarantee some paternity leave and and part of those as that was happening they the post um to their credit also you know went from four to 20. um and i, I was kind of surprised that you wanted to ask me about this but i you know it, it the risk of being just so sincere and genuine like it was incredible um and i i know i have some other colleagues that have taken it. Um, my friend Rick Mace was on it. Um, my friend Will Hobson is on it now. Um, and as far as I know, they're taking the full 20 weeks. Nobody's concerned about it. Um, and I, again, at the risk of being like overly sincere, it was really just incredible to, you know, spend time, not just with a a new baby, but my two-year-old and my wife, I took slack off my phone. and. I took Twitter off my phone and, you know, I was present at bedtime in ways that I'm usually not. And my editors were pretty good, too. They didn't bother me. I even reached out to ask if they wanted me to write about the athletic sale um, to the New York Times. They said, no, you're on leave. Um, And admittedly, it was a little surreal sometimes watching some of the news or hearing, you know, some news and not rushing to cover it. But I was, you know, really gone long enough where I was really um, actually pretty excited to come back. Um, and now, you know, calling people that I haven't talked to in so long, it's, it's almost a little embarrassing to say, oh no, I was gone for 20 weeks on paternity leave. Um, cause they, they sort of look at you like you have three heads, but I, uh, I, I like can't say enough about it and, um, thought it was pretty incredible.
2: What's the hardest part about coming back to work after all I that I think
3: time? I was terrified that I, that I wouldn't be able to write something cause I didn't write anything for 20 weeks. I don't remember the last time I didn't write anything. Um, you know, besides the occasional email. And I would definitely say that the story I wrote this week probably needed a a little more editing uh, on the uh, raw copy than (laughs) other stories I've done. Um, So hopefully the next one is better. But I think it's actually literally the writing that I was terrified of, like sitting down and like having to put sentence after sentence together in a coherent and interesting way. Um, And and hopefully (laughs) it gets better. Um, But no, it definitely took me a lot longer to write that article. Um, just being out of practice and I I think just really that was the part that I was terrified of like sitting down and staring at a blank screen and knowing I was going to have to put these sentences together
2: Ben Strauss thanks for coming on the Press Box
3: Um, long time listener so thank you for uh, thanks for having me
2: it's time for the second weekly edition of David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline
4: yeah In case you can't tell, for you people listening to this, I'm wearing a totally different shirt than I was on Monday.
2: (laughs) Monday's headline about China and Ukraine was all that she wants. Today's headline, David, comes from Josh Siskind. It's from the Washington Post. Turns out there's a guy in Washington, D.C., David, who made local COVID graphs. The D.C. government would announce new cases, and this guy would make neighborhood by neighborhood charts and graphs. Very cool. Well, DC is no longer announcing new COVID cases, or daily anyway, and so the graph maker is hanging it up. What was the Washington Post's strained pun headline?
4: Well, oh, there's so many things we could do with this. This is You definitely don't have enough information here. COVID <laughs> uh, c- um, graph. Mm-hmm end of a oh yeah end, okay yep. the, yeah they right there end of a um,
2: what's on the what's on the graph
4: infection in uh, uh, positive um, end of a... Uh, no the
2: actual graph itself
4: oh point um uh mm-hmm. s- dots
2: it's uh, the end of the end of the point
4: in, into the chart? Into the into the the More graph? into the um line? Into the line.
2: It's the end of the lines. That's great. The end of the lines. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis production magic by Erica Cervantes. Back with this guy Shoemaker on Monday. More lukewarm takes about the media. See you then,
4: David. See you later, Brian.